Hi, I'm David Walker, and welcome to the Brain Tumor Podcast. If you haven't listened to one of these podcasts before, the aim is to educate and inform. It's to provide much-needed information for those wishing to find out more about brain tumors. Please, if you like the show, leave us a good rating. In that way, more people get to hear about us, and therefore more people will be potentially helped by the information in the podcast. Now, on to today's episode. Hi, this is David Walker with another episode of the Brain Tumor Podcast. Today I'm going to talk about pituitary tumors. I'm going to talk about what the pituitary gland actually is and where it, and where it sits in the body. And a lot of people don't know that. I'm going to talk about the classification of pituitary tumors, their clinical presentation, investigations and treatment. Now, it's a very big topic and most a lot of people spend their whole careers dedicated to the management and investigation of uh, pituitary tumours. So obviously in a short podcast like this, which is directed um, to help patients and their families understand their conditions, we're not going to cover much in the way of that heavy detail. But I hope to give you some um, brief and useful introduction to the the topic. So the pituitary gland is, is about the size of a pea, and it sits at the base of the brain in a little... Um, indentation of the base of the skull called the cella tersica, which is, actually means the Turkish saddle. So that pituitary gland sits in there and is connected to the, to the brain itself by a stalk. Now the pituitary gland actually is made up of two components, the anterior pituitary and the posterior pituitary. The anterior pituitary is actually not derived from the brain. It's actually, it embryologically comes up from the roof of the mouth. And the posterior pituitary gland is actually part of the brain which um, extends down from the base of the brain, or actually the hypothalamus. And both of those are important and work together. The anterior pituitary gland is an, basically the maestro or comp- comp- um, conductor of the endocrine system throughout the body. So it, under instructions from the brain and other factors, puts out hormonal mediators that then control different endocrine systems within the body. And that's a gross oversimplification, but that'll give you some idea of what the pituitary gland does. The posterior pituitary also has a hormonal type function, but secretes only two hormones, ADH or antidiuretic hormone and oxytocin. Antidiuretic hormone is very important for retention of water through the kidneys and oxytocin is involved in childbirth and other, other, other functions. Most of what we're going to talk about today relates to the anterior pituitary gland but it is important that we understand that the posterior pituitary gland and its, its important functions and how it relates to treatment and, and aftercare, particularly after surgery. So how are pituitary tumours classified? Now, there are different ways of thinking about pituitary tumours. And I think this, the way I'm going to talk about it here is this most easy to understand and the most useful in terms of clinical decision making. Firstly, pituitary tumours can be classified in terms of their tissue of origin. So most of them arise from the pituitary gland itself and are therefore called pituitary adenomas. I'm going to 
qualify that and, and talk about what um, that term is now uh, referred to. But for all intents and purposes, pituitary adenomas are tumours that arise from the pituitary, anterior pituitary gland and have may or may not um, secrete hormones, hormones into the bloodstream. Other tumours that can occur in the pituitary gland, including a, a, a tumour called craniopharyngioma. There are also other cystic-type masses that can occur in the pituitary gland. So there are a variety of pathologies that can occur in the pituitary fossa or the, in the pituitary gland or its surrounds. But today I want to focus on that pituitary adenomas. Now pituitary adenomas can be classified as a first step in terms of their size. They can either be microadenomas, that is smaller than 10 millimetres, or macroadenomas, 10 millimetres or over in maximal diameter. Now that's important in terms of how tumours are approached in their treatment and what symptoms they're likely to have um, caused. Secondly, pituitary adenomas can be classified in terms of their functionality. They can be either non-functioning, that is, do not produce any clinically significant levels of hormone, or they can be functioning, so that they can actually produce excess hormone, and that can have hormonal effects, and the patient may present um, with a hormonal disturbance rather than anything else as their first presentation. And thirdly, the tumours can be classified histologically, and the pathological classification of pituitary tumours has evolved over time, and it's actually quite complex. The WHO classification has now evolved and there's a new edition of that that's been put out in 2022. And that distinguishes clearly uh, anterior lobe tumours from posterior lobe tumours, which are actually quite rare. Um, other tumours within the cellar region are also discussed within that classification, as I mentioned above. But anterior tumours basically include, firstly, well-differentiated adenohypophyseal tumours, that is, tumours of the anterior um, pituitary that are now classified as pituitary neuroendocrine tumours. And they were formerly known as pituitary adenomas. The second main type of tumour within the anterior pituitary are the pituitary blastomas, which are rare and are aggressive tumours that invade um, locally. And thirdly, the two types of cranio, uh, well, craniopharyngioma, which I mentioned above, and I won't be talking about those today. The, the new WHO classification provides you know, detailed subtyping of the pit nets, that is the pituitary neuroendocrine tumours, uh, based on cell lineage and, and so where, where they've derived from and the cell characteristics based on a lot of this is based on immunohistochemistry but overall that's really not that important in terms of basic management and understanding of pituitary tumours. So pituitary tumours can present either with problems or they can be incidental findings so it's quite common these days for people to have MRI scans or CT scans even for some reason or other and then uh, it's discovered they have a small pituitary tumour or sometimes even a large one but usually a small one and so this incidental finding um, it will often worries patients because they get told that they have a brain tumour. But usually small tumours are nothing to worry about. And in fact, 
pituitary microadenomas are actually fairly common and a few percent of people will have one at any one time in their adulthood um, and they usually don't result in any any concerns at all but they, they sometimes can grow and they sometimes can cause problems but if they're not causing any hormonal disturbance and they're small then nothing usually needs to be done about them other than follow-up. Pituitary adenomas may also cause problems from their size. So if pituitary tumours do grow, and these are usually macroadenomas, that is over 10 millimetres in maximum diameter, they can cause compression and dysfunction of the normal pituitary gland. So that results in a condition called hypopituitarism. So the, the pituitary is not putting out any its normal hormones, and therefore the whole body is basically not producing hormones so that the person has... Uh, if it's a male, lack of testosterone, females, lack of, lack of um, ovarian hormones um, and uh, thyroid hormones, all sorts of things. So a, a person can, be, can present with hypopituitarism if they have a large pituitary tumour. But pituitary adenomas can also cause mass effect from growing locally so that they can grow upwards superiorly or to the side, laterally or inferiorly. Superior growth is the most common because the bone um, constraints are less so that the tumour can grow upwards and sitting above the pituitary gland is a, a very important structure. It's the optic chiasm, that is the, the joining of the two optic nerves um, that come from the eyes. So the pituitary tumours can affect that optic chiasm or the optic nerves or the optic tracts, which are the parts of the nerves that go past the uh, optic chiasm to the brain. So visual disturbance can occur, and that's actually a classical and fairly common presentation of a large pituitary tumour with an extension above the cella, what's so-called supracellar extension. And that can cause either decreased visual acuity, so the person may not be able to see as well, or they have loss of their visual fields. That is that they can't see the whole um, spectrum that they normally would see. And classically, a patient with a pituitary tumour would present with a bitemporal hemianopia. And that means that they cannot see to the sides. So it's interesting examination. But that's due to um, the fibres within the brain, uh, within the optic chiasm, in the centre of the optic chiasm being affected more than those at the sides. I mean, a detailed discussion about the anatomy of the optic chiasm is beyond the scope of this particular podcast. So tumours can also spread, grow laterally and into so-called cavernous sinus and affect other cranial nerves. So um, not only can the visual system itself be affected, but eye movements can be affected or sensation of the face can be affected. And far less commonly, the tumours can grow inferiorly and invade the brain and cause a leak of brain fluid. If they, and that's um, a rare but well-recognised complication of, a, a, of pituitary tumour growth inferiorly. The other way that uh, a person with a pituitary tumour may present not just, uh, are endocrine effects. So we talked about hypopituitarism, but some tumours, as I mentioned above, actually produce hormones. And so they can uh, cause particular clinical syndromes. And the ones that are uh, the most common are 
one's caused by prolactin secretion. So that's called a prolactinoma. And that can actually re re cause no particular problems in a male other than um, hypopituitarism. But in females, uh, premenopausal females, this will cause galactorrhea, so producing milk um, when they're not supposed to be producing milk, or amenorrhea, so they lose their menstrual cycle. And that's due to the high levels of prolactins um, circulating, circulating around their body. Two other syndromes are classical um, of hyperpituitarism. Firstly, acromegaly, so that's or giantism. Giantism occurs before um, in in adolescence and children. It's when the growth hormone is secreted by the pituitary tumor, and so there's a classical uh, clinical syndrome. Um, in and I won't go through all the details. Um, but it's due to excess growth hormone. Um, and because in adults um, the bones are fused and they don't grow anymore, they don't have giantism, but they basically have thickening of uh, all thick tissue, um, of soft tissues in their body and many other uh, medical complications as a result of having excess growth hormone. Another classical um, syndrome is Cushing's syndrome, and that's due to excess ACTH secretion, which results in cortisol um, secretion from the adrenal glands. And that also causes a classical syndrome with central obesity and loss of muscle mass and thin skin and um, recurrent infections and, and several many other clinical syndromes or clinical features. Well, how are tumours of the pituitary gland investigated? There are two major types of investigations. Firstly, blood investigations. So it's very important to do basic blood work and also um, blood work specific to the pituitary function, uh, particularly looking at levels of prolactin and growth hormone and ACTH, cortisol and thyroid function, etc. All of those are very important. Um, it's important to recognise that prolactin levels um, can be elevated slightly, um, up to 10 times the upper range of normal, and that does not indicate a prolactinoma, but rather a so-called stalk effect, where a, an enlarged or a pituitary adenoma can actually decrease the function or, or the, the negative impact from the hypothalamus. This is quite confusing, so sorry about that, but basically, a slightly elevated prolactin level does not indicate a prolactinoma. Prolactinomas usually have much greater than 10 times the uh, upper range of normal of prolactin. Um, now, the other major form of investigation are radiological investigations, and that primarily is an MRI scan, uh, specifically looking at the cellar or the pituitary fossa and surrounds. But CT scans are important as well because they can uh, work um, help establish the bony anatomy particularly when planning for surgery, but also indicate whether the tumour has some, element, um, some calcification within it. Um, so C MRI scans and CT scans are important. So how are pituitary tumours treated? Well, incidental tumours usually don't need to be treated unless they actually are causing problems on investigation or that they are shown to grow over time. So 
Incidental tumours usually do not need treatment but just require regular follow-up with MRI scans every 6 to 12 months or so. Prolactinomas are usually treated medically and they respond in most circumstances to dopamine agonist medications, classically bromocryptine, but more uh, commonly these days, cabergoline. And so they, in fact, inhibit the growth of the prolactin-secreting cells within the pituitary tumour and, in, in fact, cause shrinkage of the tumour quite dramatically. And it's only rare cases that prolactinoma tumours need surgical or other treatment if they fail that medical treatment. Surgery, though, is required for all other types of uh, tumours that are causing problems. And surgery is usually what we call transphenoidal approach. In years gone by, uh, pituitary tumours were approached transcranially, so via a craniotomy under the brain and to the pituitary tumour. But the great majority of pituitary tumours now are are approached transphenoidally. Most commonly via the nose, but occasionally um, sublingually, but that's, as far as I know, very uncommon these days um, and really has fallen out of favour over the last 20 years. Um, And pituitary uh, transphenoidal surgery this can be done with a neurosurgeon alone or with a neurosurgeon working together with an ENT surgeon. There are two major t- ways of doing the, the surgery, either via traditionally um, using a microscope or quite often these days using an endoscope only. And both had their advantages and disadvantages. Um, there's actually no proven benefit of one over the other, but so others, some will advocate one rather than the other, and certainly endoscopy um, has some advantages in terms of um, being able to look around corners, etc. But nonetheless, there's no real difference in outcomes, particularly in, in uh, standard approaches and standard tumours. Radiation treatment has a role, either um, after treatment, after surgery, when there's no uh, other role, another, no further surgery required or are possible and that there is residual or recurrent tumour. But sometimes radiation has a role up front. Um, and this can be either in functioning tumours or non-functioning tumours. It's important to recognise, though, after any form of treatment or that and the role of an endocrinologist uh, in helping to manage, investigate and manage these patients is, is critical because they quite frequently both around the time of surgery and soon after surgery and in the long term, patients will require replacement therapy because the normal pituitary function will be affected um, by the tumour and by the surgery. And that's very important because some of the functions of pituitary gland are life... uh, Well, dysfunction can be life-threatening, such as disturbance of water and electrolyte balance and also of cortisol secretion so via ACTH. So this is a somewhat um, confusing uh, subject when it's given in such a brief manner, but I've tried to cover the basics and I hope that gives you some idea and, and, and inspires you to investigate further on via your own sources. Thanks again for listening.
The information in this podcast is general in nature and it's not a substitute for the medical advice that you get from your own doctors. I'm not able to provide specific information or advice relating to your condition or anyone's individual condition in this podcast. But if you do have suggestions or feedback, please let me know and send me an email at professordavidwalker at brisbrain.com.au. That's all small case, professordavidwalker at brisbrain.com.au. Thanks very much. Have a great day.